will open with me in your copy of the Word of God to the book of Leviticus, chapter 21. Leviticus, chapter 21. We'll be in Leviticus, chapter 21 and 22 this morning. And we will read both here in a few moments. Just a word of thanks. I've been out of the pulpit for the last four weeks. And I am grateful to serve on a team and with elders where we have many brothers who preach and can preach so well. I'm grateful for Dan Kruver preaching two weeks for us and then for Jason Reed and then for Matt Jackson for carrying the word so well. Uh, it's good for me to sit under the word and not to know what's going to happen that Sunday. For the most part on a Sunday, I know exactly what's going to happen except all the invisible things the Lord does through his word. And it's been encouraging and edifying and strengthening for me. We are back in Leviticus, as promised, this Sunday, with about five weeks in this book left to go. We'll begin our time by reading all of chapters 21 and chapter 22. Listen as I read. And the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the priests, the sons of Aaron, and say to them, No one shall make himself unclean for the dead among his people, except for his closest relatives, his mother, his father, his son, his daughter, his brother, or his virgin sister, who is near to him because she has had no husband. For her he may make himself unclean. He shall not make himself unclean as a husband among his people, and so profane himself, They shall not make bald patches on their heads or shave off the edges of their beards, nor make any cuts on their body. They shall be holy to their God and not profane the name of their God. For they offer the Lord's food offerings, the bread of their God. Therefore, they shall be holy. They shall not marry a prostitute or a woman who has been defiled. Neither shall they marry a woman divorced from her husband, for the priest is holy to his God. You shall sanctify him, for he offers the bread of your God. He shall be holy to you, for I, the Lord, who sanctify you, am holy. And the daughter of any priest, if she profanes herself by whoring, profanes her father, and she shall be burned with fire. The priest who is chief among his brothers, on whose head the anointing oil is poured, and who has been consecrated to wear the garments, shall not let the hair of his head hang loose, nor tear his clothes. He shall not go into any dead bodies, nor make himself unclean, even for his father or for his mother. He shall not go out of the sanctuary, lest he profane the sanctuary of his God, for the consecration of the anointing oil of his God is on him. I am the Lord. And he shall take a wife in her virginity. A widow or a divorced woman, or a woman who has been defiled, or a prostitute, these he shall not marry. For he shall take as his wife a virgin of his own people, that he may not profane his offspring among his people. For I am the Lord who sanctifies him. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron, saying, None of your offspring throughout your generations, who has a blemish, may approach to offer the bread of his God. For no one who has a blemish shall draw near, a man blind or lame, or one who has a mutilated face or a limb too long or a man who has an injured foot, or an injured hand, or a hunchback, or a dwarf, or a man with a defect in his sight, or an itching disease, or scabs, or crushed testicles. No man of the offspring of Aaron, the priest who has a blemish, shall come near to offer the Lord's food offerings. Since he has a blemish, he shall not come near to offer the bread of his God. 
He may eat the bread of his God, both of the most holy and the holy things, but he shall not go through the veil or approach the altar because he has a blemish, that he may not profane my sanctuaries, for I am the Lord who sanctifies them. So Moses spoke to Aaron and to his sons and to all the people of Israel. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons so that they abstain from the holy things of the people of Israel, which they dedicated to me, so that they do not profane my holy name. I am the Lord. And say to them, if any one of all your offspring throughout your generations approaches the holy things that the people of Israel dedicated to the Lord, while he has an uncleanness, that person shall be cut off from my presence. I am the Lord. None of the offspring of Aaron who has a leprous disease or a discharge may eat of the holy things until he's clean. Whoever touches anything that is unclean through contact with the dead or a man who has an emission of semen and, through, and touches a swarming thing by which he may be made unclean or a person from whom he may take uncleanness, whatever his uncleanness may be, the person who touches such a thing shall be unclean until the evening and shall not eat of the holy things unless he has bathed his body in water. When the sun goes down, he shall be clean, and afterward he may eat of the holy things, because they are his food. He shall not eat what dies of itself or is torn by beasts and so make himself unclean by it. I am the Lord. They shall therefore keep my charge, lest they bear sin for it and die, thereby when they profane it. I am the Lord who sanctifies them. A lay person shall not eat of a holy thing. No foreign guest of the priest or hired worker shall eat of a holy thing. But if a priest buys a slave as his property for money, the slave may eat of it, and anyone born in his house may eat of his food. If a priest's daughter marries a layman, she shall not eat of the contribution of the holy things. But if a priest's daughter is widowed or divorced and has no child and returns to her father's house, as in her youth, she may eat of her father's food. Yet no lay person shall eat of it. And if anyone eats of a holy thing unintentionally, he shall add the fifth of its value to it and give the holy thing to the priest. They shall not profane the holy things of the people of Israel, which they contribute to the Lord. And so cause them to bear iniquity and guilt by eating their holy things. For I am the Lord who sanctifies them. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons and all the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of the house of Israel or of the sojourners in Israel presents a burnt offering as his offering for any of their vows or freewill offerings that they offer to the Lord, if it is to be accepted for you, it shall be a male without blemish of the bulls or the sheep or the goats. You shall not offer anything that has a blemish, for it will not be acceptable for you. And when anyone offers a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord to fulfill a vow or as a freewill offering from the herd or from the flock, To be accepted, it must be perfect. There shall be no blemish in it. Animals blind or disabled or mutilated or having a discharge or an itch or scabs, you shall not offer to the Lord or give them to the Lord as a food offering on the altar. You may present a bull or a lamb that has a part too long long or short or a freewill offering, but for a vow offering, it cannot be accepted. Any animal that has its testicles bruised or crushed or torn or cut, you shall not offer to the Lord. You shall not do it within your own land, neither shall you offer as the bread of your God any such animals gotten from a foreigner, since there is a blemish in them. Because of their mutilation, they will not be accepted for you. 
And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, When an ox or a sheep or a goat is born, it shall remain seven days with its mother, and from the eighth day on it it shall be acceptable as a food offering to the Lord. But you shall not kill an ox or a sheep and her young in one day. And when you sacrifice a sacrifice of thanksgiving to the Lord, you shall sacrifice it so that you may be accepted. It shall be eaten on the same day. You shall leave none of it until the morning. I am the Lord. So you shall keep my commandments and do them. I am the Lord, and you shall not profane my holy name, that I may be sanctified among the people of Israel. I am the Lord who sanctifies you, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord. Well, God is a holy God. He is perfect. And holiness is the way to heaven. And holiness is the way of heaven. The Lord is holy. And holiness is the way to heaven. And holiness is the way of heaven. Well, in this passage, we've learned a number of things that priests under the Old Covenant in the Old Testament were not allowed to serve in the sanctuary and perform their priestly duties if they had a defect of some kind. If they were handicapped, they could not perform their duties. They were not able to cut their hair in a certain fashion, and their daughters, if they were married, weren't able to eat at their dinner table the food that had been offered, but the other family members in the immediate family, could. Perfectionism. Anyone here a perfectionist? There's a couple kinds of perfectionists. Some we love, some we hate. Some of us are loved and some of us are hated. There's an OCD kind of perfectionist. Uh, The perfectionist that is somewhat irrational, and maybe they know it, but, but they still like to wash their hands so many times or 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 check the inbox a thousand times, click, click, refresh three times before trusting the browser. Um, I did a little bit of browsing this morning for OCD memes. Uh, There was one, if you would like to start a fight on Thanksgiving, if this is a good idea, uh, you have a pumpkin pie, and then you cut a triangle out of the middle of it. And then you cut another one normally, and that will mess with some OCD family, at least one of them, and you will be off to a good fight. There were all kinds of other pictures, like one picture of, a, of a, a carton of eggs and another picture, and one carton of eggs had eggs taken out in different places, and another carton of eggs was, you know, very even. A person had done it just right, the, the way it's supposed to be. Um, and when I was thinking this morning about how this isn't me at all, uh, we have a, a meeting in my office around 9.10 to pray for you in the service and walk through things, and uh, I have a stack of three little books on a coffee table. And I looked at the books, and I thought, ooh, I need to straighten those out. So right in front of my friends, I took the books, and I straightened the corners out just like, just like that. But oh, they might see that they're out of order. Now, if you've been in my office, you'll know that there are some things that are in order, and there are some things that are not in order. Uh, but there is an order to the disorder, I promise. Nevertheless, I straightened the books out and needed to make fun of myself to you. Well, there's all kinds of... Uh, 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 ways in which we're OCD, thinking of gas these days. Um, one little meme said, uh, the OCD's great problem, and it would be when the cost of gas, or the, the gallons of gas was like 39.99, but the gallons was 
$10 even. So what do you do? What would you do? I don't pay any attention to the gas. I put it in like that and I look away. I know you know what I mean. So there's that kind of perfectionism. You know, it needs things that are perfect that, are, that don't make any sense to be perfect was speaking with Manny Figueroa in our, in our church. And he's a handyman and works with his hand. He's a craftsman by trade. And he said sometimes he'll work with guys that get real upset when something isn't, isn't perfect. And he says he considers his job, thinking theologically about it, to be a straightening of imperfect things. In other words, he starts his day assuming everything is broken and bent and contorted, and his job is to get it as straight as possible. But not everything is exactly perfect in the end. And if you expect that or need that, that job, working with wood, is not for you. Thought that was a good insight. In any case, one type of perfectionism is OCD, irrational. It sucks the life out of the people around it. Well, another kind is not so much that case. You want, you want your surgeon to be a perfectionist about what they're doing, to have their head in it, to have all of their T's crossed and their I's dotted. The architect who designs a structure, you want to do it just right because you're going to climb inside that thing and trust your life to it. Now, there's a kind of perfection that saves your life or sustains and supports your life. And those are good kinds of perfection. It just depends on what we're talking about. Well, what is the Lord here? Because some of these rules seem a little overkill. Now, we're reading an ancient book, and so we take it for granted that we're not going to understand these things. And as good Bible readers who believe that the Lord gave this to us and that all of Scripture makes us wise for salvation and it's all profitable, we believe it's profitable. But we confess we don't always understand on first read how that is so. And that's okay. It's okay to read our Bibles and not know what it means and nevertheless to believe that the God who gave it to us will reveal it to us one day. And when we meet him in heaven, all these things will be plain. We'll be amazed at the book we had before us. But we live with some confusion at times, and this is one of those chapters that can, can give this to us. Well, just like we have to ask, what's the context for a certain person's perfectionism? Are they a surgeon? Well, great. Well, in this case, this is a chapter, two chapters about Israel's priests. Well, it's important to know what priests are, what they're doing as priests in God's plan. That should help get us at least a little bit down the road before we get into, into the passage. What do priests do? Well, there's different ways to answer this, but I'll answer it this way this morning with a picture, a promise, and a pattern. Priests, when you look at a priest and imagine a priest in the Old Covenant, you're seeing a picture. You're seeing a picture of God and all of his perfection. Now, these were weak human men appointed for this purpose. An imperfect picture. A picture isn't the real thing. But priests were conveying to the people in the manner in which they went about their vocation what the Lord is like. So in some fashion, because they're mediating the Lord to us and us to the Lord, in some fashions, they're like us, but in some fashion, they are like God. And so we can ask ourselves, what does this peculiar rule for the priests teach us about what God is like? 
Priests are also a promise. When we see a priest, can you imagine a priest? They're making a promise implicitly through the fact that they keep dying or have to make repeated sacrifice. There's an implied promise of a day when a forever priest and a forever sacrifice and a perfect sacrifice will be, will be made. And these priests with these rules are projecting forward something about the priest that will come. Thinking about the priests as, uh, as a picture, consider all of the instances throughout the whole chapter of the mention of profaning the name of the Lord. Verse 6. They shall be holy to their God and not profane the name of their God. Well, there's, there it is. Something about the priest, he has to act in a certain way in order not to profane God's name, in order not to fail at representing God to the people. He shall be holy to you. Verse 12, you shall not go out of the sanctuary lest he profane the sanctuary of his God. Now, the priests would go in and out of the sanctuary, but what this means is that he never leaves his vocation as priest. He's always a priest. Verse 15, that he may not profane his offspring among his people. That's why he's to marry who he's to marry. I could go down through the list. There are about a half a dozen or more of these instances. The priest is a picture of the Lord. And so there's certain ways he can and can't act in order to provide a proper picture in order for himself to survive in the presence of the Lord. Well, then you have the the priest as a promise. And we notice here over and again, verse 8, for example, I, the Lord, sanctify you. I, the Lord who sanctify you, am holy. And verse 15, I am the Lord who sanctifies him. Six times or more in this chapter, this indication that God is telling us over and over and again, I am the Lord who sanctifies you, his priest and his people. The Lord is committed to the holiness of his people. Sanctified, that's what it means, to make holy. I am the Lord who makes the priest holy. I am the Lord who makes you holy. He is the one who makes his people holy. Now he tells his people, You sanctify him, the priest, and we're told to sanctify ourselves, but behind all of that is the Lord who is at work to set his people apart as holy unto himself. And this repetition of I will sanctify, I will sanctify, draws our eye forward to the day when the Lord will actually get it done. He will have for himself a holy priest, and he will have for himself a holy people. He calls his people a holy priesthood. And in the New Testament, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is called a holy priesthood. This passage right here, these two chapters, prefigure in a shadowy way the day when a perfect priest will come and when the Lord God himself will make for himself a holy people. This passage here, this chapter, these priests function as a picture and as a promise. They also function as a pattern, as a pattern, a pattern to follow. 1 Peter 2, chapter 9 says that we are a royal priesthood, that we have been set apart by God to be holy as he's holy, to declare his excellencies, and on that basis we're to abstain from the passions of the flesh during the course of our exile. 
that God has made us a priesthood in order that we would be holy. So there's, there's something in this chapter, not by way of specific prescription for the Christian, but by way of principled application for us to learn about what it means to live together as priests. So my applications this morning along the way are not going to be to leaders. You might read a chapter like this and think, okay, so there's application here for leaders. That's true. But in the New Covenant community, the church, our, our elders and our leaders are but examples of what all of us are as a royal priesthood. So as we get to know what priests are in the Old Covenant, we will get to know who God is, we will get to know who our Savior is, who is coming later, and we will get to know who we are as his people. Okay, so with that in mind, let us walk ourselves through the passage considering how it is that all of this content that we read helps us understand God, the Lord, and ourselves. There are six sections. You, you heard the refrain, I am the Lord who sanctifies him. That comes at the end of each of six sections. Sections, And that's a nice way to know when you're breaking your material is. So we're going to ring each section out for something that's useful for us in understanding God, our Savior, and ourselves. So six sections. What are priests to do? What lessons are there here for us as God's priests? What lessons are there here for us in understanding the Lord Jesus as our priest? Well, in the first place, priests pursue holiness as a matter of life and death. Priests pursue holiness as a matter of life and death. Verses 1 through 9. God's priests are to be perfect in, in holiness. Speak to the priests, the sons of Aaron, and say to them, No one shall make himself unclean for the dead among his people, except for his closest relatives, his mother, his father, his son, his daughter, his brother, or his virgin sister. And we have here in this little section the recurring phrase of clean or unclean, cleanness or uncleanness. And just a reminder about our work so far in the book of Leviticus. If you hear unclean and you think sinful, you're going to be confused because the tent could be unclean. And then you've got God saying, Moses saying later in this, own, this, own, this text, uh, that the priest can go ahead and make himself unclean for you know, his family member's funeral, but that's it. So it's not sinful to be unclean. Uncleanness and cleanness in the Old Covenant, in this ancient text, doesn't have to do with being sinful or not being sinful. Instead, it has to do with your association with and identification with or closeness with the effects of sin, and especially death. So do you see? Here, in this passage, the first order of business for God's priests, if they're going to be a mediator, a go-between for God and you, is that they not bury the dead and make themselves unclean. To associate themselves with, to put themselves in contact with the dead thereby not being able to be in the presence of God. That's good news already, that God isn't like us, and heaven won't be like earth. 
death doesn't reign in the new creation, and God is not a God of death, he never dies. And neither will his priest, his great high priest to come, ever die. Well, these priests right here pictured what God is like in the way that they related to death. And in the fact that they didn't go to all the funerals they might wanted to have gone to. This doesn't mean that the priests could not mourn or grieve. What it means is that they weren't at all the funerals they may have wanted to go to. They can go to some funerals, uh, very close family, the closest relatives. Then it says his virgin sister, and a little explanation, who's near to him because she has no husband. In other words, if she marries out, then he can't go to her funeral if he dies. Oh, that sounds cruel, doesn't it? Hard on the priests. Nevertheless, the priest's job was difficult but important. The priest was holding out to the community the hope of a day when death would be done. In the priest's vocation and life, he could go to some funerals. He was allowed to become unclean for some things. But he wasn't like a pastor at every funeral and at every graveside. No, no, no. The priest was not at every graveside. And when the priest wasn't at the graveside, that was a reminder that while God is with you, God is not a God of death, and he'll put this thing down one day. And in that way, these priests were holding out a promise of a day when the Lord would be with his people and death would be no more. Israel had a... Uh, Israel's life, as you'll recall, was ordered according to cleanness and uncleanness, holiness and things that are profaned. And even space itself, where you were, you were always somewhere in relationship to the holiness of God. So you had the most holy place. Just out from that, you had the holy place. Just out from that, you had the camp. And out from that, you were outside the camp. But that was the community of Israel, all of that space. And the the chief priest would go into the most holy place once a year, and the other priests worked in the holy place. Here was the presence of God in the middle of the community, and you had some workers who represented the people who could go in. The book of Leviticus is about the Lord coming to be with his people and about what it takes for the Lord to be with them. And it takes sacrifices, and it takes priests to get together with the Lord. And this first matter of business is to show that the priest's vocation requires him to pursue holiness as a matter of life and death. And that's what I mean by it. And the holy of holies is the blazing hot presence of God, life himself, and outside the camp and into the wilderness is chaos and death. Do you know chaos and death? Have you been there? We are born there. And Leviticus in the Bible holds out the promise that we have a God who will make home with his people. He will make home even on earth. And because he provides sacrifices and a priest, there is a way for you and I to be with God. Priests pursue holiness as a matter of life and death. And this first matter of mourning and funerals has to do with the end of life, death itself. And there are some additional instructions here which concern marriage and who he's allowed to marry. 
Marriage, that institution from which life springs and from which uh, God's people would receive their priests. Which is why I think he says they're not able to marry a prostitute or a woman who has been defiled. Neither a woman divorced from her husband for the priest is holy to his God. What this doesn't mean is that God can't save a Rahab or that because we have specific instructions in Israel... Divorced women were allowed to remarry as well as in the New Covenant. This isn't a statement about the wickedness of people who have been redeemed or a statement that Christians shouldn't marry the divorced as a matter of principle. We need to think in somewhat different terms here. This is the priest who represents God, who goes into the very place of God's presence. He was to be above reproach without question. And in particular here, His line was to be pure. His children were to be his children and everyone needed to be certain of that. And so that restricted his marrying marrying options. Depending on the background of the woman, it may call into the question, whose kids are his? That's what I think is happening here. You shall sanctify him for he offers the bread of your God. He shall be holy to you for I the Lord who sanctify you, am holy. He was to be spick and span, as close to God as possible in everything about him. So both in mourning and in marriage, he is pursuing holiness as a matter of life and of death. We have this comment here I want to clarify something on. Verse 9, the daughter of any priest, if she profanes herself by whoring, profanes her father, and she shall be burned with fire. Oh, yikes. Um, So a clarification. Um, Not burned alive, burned after stoning. Not that that helps a whole lot. Um, Didn't have other ways to do it. Stoning was the way that uh, capital punishment was carried out in the theocracy that was Israel. In this case, her body was burned after she was killed. And what is that about? So a clarification and now an interpretation. Notice this little chain of profane, profane, profane. So the daughter of any priest, if she profanes herself by whoring, profanes her father. Walk back with me, verse 7. She shall not marry, they not marry a prostitute or a woman who's been defiled, Neither a marry a woman divorced from her husband, for the priest is holy to his God. He shall be holy to you. I sanctify him. There's something, so the, this daughter's promiscuity would profane herself, and that is what sexual immorality does to ourselves. But it also, because she's a part of this priestly family, it profanes her father. But her father is to be holy to the Lord and not profane the name of his God. We were banished from Eden because of our sin, men and women. All of us, all of humanity. And the flaming swords guard the the way back into the garden, not just to protect the garden from us, from defilement, but to protect us from God's presence in the garden. For we could not be back where God was and live because of our sin. And remember that the tabernacle is a little model of the cosmos, of of God's presence in his creation, 
God is now dwelling here, and it's like a little model of his home and presence. It's like a little, it's a little plot of Eden on earth where he shows up. And so sexual immorality, which would taint a woman and then profane the priest, would then profane the sanctuary. And the body of that woman who has done such a thing must be completely discarded. And that is not to make a point that ought to sound cruel, but it should speak of the holiness of God. It should speak of the seriousness of sexual sin in the way that it profanes us and others and God's name. And it speaks to being here in this context, God's commitment to being with us in such a way that there is no sexual immorality or sin. For one day he will burn up the heavens and the earth and bring a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And there will be no such thing as lust or sexual sin any longer. So take that as a warning, but remember, take it as well as a promise of God's commitment to be with us in holiness, even to make us holy. Well, let's get on to the second one here. Some will be longer than others. Secondly, the priests, God's priests, devote themselves to the Lord above all else. A priest devotes himself to the Lord above all else. Verses 10 through 15. He is perfect in holiness and in his devotion. This section here, 10 through 15, major difference is that he was talking about priests initially. Those are the guys who go into the holy place. Now he's talking about the holy priest, the one guy who goes all the way into the most holy place once a year. The chief priest has to follow the other rules, but his holiness needs to be even at another level because he's going to go into a more holy place than the other, than the other priests. See, verse 11, he shall not go into any dead bodies nor make himself unclean. Here's the difference. Even for his father or his mother, he is that holy. We can't help but remember Jesus' own call on those who would follow him to leave father and mother, even hate father and mother, which doesn't mean actively to hate them. It means, by way of contrast, our love for the Lord is so great as to eclipse all other gifts and relationships. When you join yourself to the Lord through faith in Jesus, you belong to him first. And it might mean being set against family if they are set against your Lord. And here, this priest, this chief priest, by the way that he had to live, even not even even being able to bury his parents, was communicating a high, high allegiance to the Lord who was worth all of that devotion. And so, in that way, the priest is a model for our own devotion, and the priest looks forward to the day by way of promise to a priest who will give himself to the Lord above all else. There will be no conflicting allegiances for the Savior who is to come. And he will save people to himself so that they will have no conflicting allegiances in the end. He will be their all and all. And so the Lord was the priest's all and all. And the restrictions on his marriage are even just a little bit tighter. But on to the third here. Third, the priest 
models spiritual wholeness in a world broken by the fall. Verses 16 through 24. It's perfect in holiness and devotion and in his humanity. The Lord spoke to Moses, None of your offspring throughout their generations who has any blemish may approach to offer the bread of his God. And you'll remember the list of blemishes. Some of them I don't want to repeat. You've got to read the word, but sometimes you know, we can read it just, just once, and we're good, we're good. And even I'll read it just fast, you know, with no articulation or emphasis, uh, if, you, if, you, if you're picking up what I'm putting down. So there are blemishes that the priest cannot have and carry out his duty, which seems a little cruel. But there are indications that this is not about, it's not coming from a cruel place. And you know that, but let me help you with this. He's still a priest. He's in the Levitical family. He's a son of Aaron, and he's still a priest. In fact, he can still eat the food the priests eat that the Lord gives them around the table with the family. No problem, no problem there. But there is another way, I think this is a good opportunity to highlight, one second here, an insight into this matter of perfection so that you may have some comfort in a passage you weren't expecting comfort from. One commentator put it all too beautifully. I simply need to read this to you concerning perfection. The nation of Israel was organized in social rings with those suffering from the most death-like physical diseases, leprosy, residing on the outskirts of the camp. Those experiencing the day-by-day imperfections of life were dwelling in the camp itself. Those unmarred by impurity or physical defect were able to serve in the tabernacle courts. And the individual high priest alone entering the holy place as one in perfect physical form. All of these, reaching all the way to those dwelling on the outskirts of the camp, were part of Israel and members of the community of the atonement. The increasing perfection visibly portrayed by this system as one moved closer to God's presence, was not a message of exclusion for the afflicted, but a portrait of promise regarding what all God's people could anticipate one day in his presence. The twelve-fold lists of physical perfections ascribed to the priest and to the sacrifice, which we'll see later, communicate this idea of complete perfection. So here's what this... Here's what this means for us. It's a good thing that a pilot isn't allowed to be blind. It's a good thing that a friend of mine who was an anesthesiologist started to have blackouts, epilepsy, and he wasn't able to continue with his profession that he had spent so many years preparing for and that he loved. And it's a good thing that these priests were not allowed to be deformed or handicapped or blind or scarred or scraped in any way. Because through their physical status and state, they were communicating what it's like to be in the presence of God. What it will be like one day when we are with God. 
There will be no suffering. Cancer won't get to any of us in the new creation. We are already gods now. But our bodies are yet to be redeemed. And there are reminders in our bodies and the bodies of those we love and in the bodies of those we love who have gone into the grave in the last year that this is not all there is. And praise God, the priests had to be not only alive but in good physical form, a promise implicitly that one day God would heal us all and that they'll heal all of our diseases and all of our infirmities. That is precisely the comfort we are to take from this passage. The priest, in other words, was not allowed to have any blemish. You don't need to turn there with me, but I want to turn to the book of Hebrews to show you why it's so important that the priest is without blemish. We often speak about how we have a lamb that is without blemish, and that's true, and that's important. But don't forget, let me add a little bit of precision to the picture of what's happening on the cross. Not only do we have the offer of a perfect, unblemished sacrifice, lamb, but we have a perfect and unblemished priest on the cross. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost, that's a beautiful expression, those who draw near to God through him. How? Since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, listen to this, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like the other high priests to offer sacrifices daily for his own sins for those of his people. The law appoints men in their weakness as high priest. See, they were weak. But the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made made perfect forever. These priests looked forward to the day and we look forward to the day through this text. When a priest will come who is unstained, separated from sinners, and is separated even from these defilements and deformities, he is perfect and so he can mediate our relationship with God and even make us new one day. An unblemished priest. Well, let's move on to the fourth now. A priest enjoys sweet fellowship with God. Enjoys sweet fellowship with God. Now we're in chapter 22, verses 1 through 9. And this concerns the food that they offer and, and, if they, and when they are able to eat the food that is offered. Now, why are the priests eating food? Well, the Levitical priesthood, the Levitical tribe, is the only tribe among God's people that when they get into the land will not have an inheritance of land. And the reason why God does not give them an inheritance of land, he says, is because I am your inheritance. Now, I would also want land. And I would think, well, can't we have it both ways, Lord? Can't you be my inheritance and you give me a place to live? It's not how the Lord set it up. Because remember, priests are a picture. Leviticus is a shadow of the substance to come. You can even think of this like a motion picture. 
The story of Israel is like a motion picture which is predicting something to come. And in the way that Israel was structured and set up, we learn some things. We learn that ultimately the Lord is our inheritance. He provides for us. He is good to us. And he is our goodness. And the Levites were especially given to this task of seeking the Lord and depending upon the Lord and finding satisfaction in the Lord who gave them food because the people brought their sacrifices and tithes and they would eat from that. Everything that they had, their dwellings, were provided by the other tribes. They were provided to them by the Lord. And so these instructions concerning when they can eat and when they can't are negative and that they can't always eat the food when they're blemished in this way or that or when they're unclean. But I'm just drawing attention to the fact that they get to eat with the Lord. And the purpose of these is to preserve sweet fellowship with the Lord around the table and one another. Which leads us to this next point here. That the priests depend upon the Lord for everything at all times. And this next section... Uh, We deal more with eating, but it has to do with the family and who can eat. And we remember that the priests and the priest's family were fed with this food that they considered as given to them from the Lord through the sacrificial offerings. And they were to obey the Lord in the manner in which they went about eating this food and who got to eat it and who didn't because it was theirs from the Lord. It was their possession. And that's why if a foreigner eats some of it or someone who's not supposed to eat of it eats of it, they have to give some of it back with a little bit more. I think it's 5%. Because it was their possession, a gift from the Lord. And even in their eating, they were to honor the Lord and not profane the holy things of the people of Israel. Holy things, that refers to the food and the sacrifices that were brought and given. Well, finally, number six. A priest brings an offering acceptable to the Lord. Verse 17 and following. Speak to Aaron and his sons and all the people of Israel and say to them, when anyone of the house of Israel or of the sojourners in Israel presents a burnt offering as his offering for any of the vows or freewill offerings that they offer to the Lord, it is to be accepted for you. It shall be a male without blemish of the bulls, of the sheep, and the goats. And he goes on. And there's another list here of blemishes that were not allowed. Exactly 12. The 12 blemishes for sacrifices parallel the 12 blemishes for the priests. Although they're not the exact the same blemishes. Which leads us to believe 12 is just shorthand. for Like if I was to say 10 for us. 10 is a nice round number. It's kind of exemplary. These are examples of the kinds of blemishes. But the fact that we've got 12 and 12, the the sacrifice and the priest means that when these sacrifices are offered, you've got about as close to perfection as possible on earth representing the people. The perfect priest brings a perfect sacrifice and they go through no small amount of trouble to pull this off. And we see all these restrictions here. Acceptable, acceptable, acceptable. You shall sacrifice it so that you may be accepted. Which implies that it is possible were we to seek to come to God through 
any mediator or by any means that is blemished or with any sacrifice or offering that is not perfect, like, for example, your own attempts at good works, it is possible to bring to God your best and to be rejected, to be not acceptable to God. Nevertheless, this passage holds out the promise that there is a way to come to God and to be accepted. And way better than these priests and Israelites were accepted. For we come to God through a high priest without blemish, with a sacrifice without blemish, and he ever lives. And it's a totally different story. For those outside the camp with leprosy or those inside the camp with other issues or families gathered around a burial plot to bury their their loved ones. No, this high priest comes who brings himself an acceptable priest, he brings an acceptable offering in order to make us acceptable to God. He purges us from the stain of sin and from the stain of death. And that is the promise of the gospel. Turn with me to the book of 1 Peter. This book is toward the end of your your Bibles. I trust you'll hear some of these words anew if you were with us over the last number of years or so. We worked through 1 Peter. I'm just going to skip across the chapter of the book here and read some passages and you can follow along if you're, if you're able. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 19 speaks of the precious blood of Christ like them, like a lamb without blemish or without spot. Later in the book, he'll say there was no deceit found in his mouth. You know, the Pilate said, I find no fault in him. When Jesus goes to the cross, he goes to the cross as a sacrifice without blemish. He is a perfect offering to God. His blood is precious. 1 Peter chapter 2, 4, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, like Christ is precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house. He's saying, you're the tabernacle now. You are the place of the presence of God. Friend, whatever your deformity, whatever your past, whatever your marriage history, if you are in Christ, you are a part of this spiritual house. You are in with God and you are in with the people because of your perfect priest. Built up as a spiritual house to be a what? A holy priesthood. To offer spiritual sacrifices, what kind? Acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So it's through the offering of an acceptable sacrifice in Christ that we now can offer ourselves as acceptable sacrifices to God. And so when Peter will say to his, his readers, you shall be holy, quoting the Lord, as I am holy. And it's through the precious blood of Christ that this is possible. Okay, back to Leviticus now. 
We're about to land it here. God is holy. He's perfect. And holiness is the way to God. But unless I spooked you at the start, remember from the gospel that we've preached this morning that Christ, our mediator and our priest, was holy. And because Christ was holy, you have a way to God. You and I have a way to God. And you and I can draw near to God with confidence and full assurance and with our hearts sprinkled clean with his blood. Holiness is the way to God. And holiness is the way of God. It's the way of heaven. It's the way of his people. Be sanctified. It's a command We are to be holy as God is holy. But there's the encouragement in this passage as well. And it's on repeat. And it's on repeat on purpose. Not as a a mere literary device to tie up each section nicely. But as a way of communicating to you God's commitment to make you holy. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. And do you remember that passage in the book of Ephesians when the Lord is speaking to husbands concerning how they are to nurture and cherish their wives and nurture them with the water, washing them with the water of the word of God so that he might, this is what Christ does for his church, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Now remember, it's already true that we belong to God and that we have been holy and set apart and sanctified. And yet there's a tension for the church in this age that the things that are already true in part will be completely true and fully true when Jesus comes or when you die and meet him. So there's the promise that you and I one day won't struggle to be holy anymore. The Lord will sanctify you and me. He will make us holy. And he will surely do it, for he is faithful to keep his word. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for being the perfect God that you are. That you have life in yourself. And that you are not like us, a sinner. You are not like us. We die. And Father, we thank you for the story where we are taught in this motion picture on the page that you are a God holy and perfect and that you mean not to exclude us, but you hold out the promise that you will include us and you make it possible in the sending of your Son, a Son made perfect, a perfect priest for us who offers himself a perfect sacrifice. And so we pray, Father, with the confidence that you are nourishing and cherishing us and and renewing us in order that we might be holy without blemish. We pray for help by your Spirit to pursue holiness together in order that we might see you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.